Welcome to the Preacher Podcast. We are continuing our series for the Easter season, Resurrection Reality. Today we'll be talking about the second Sunday of Easter and the familiar gospel for Easter 2, John chapter 20. Uh, before we do that, just let me introduce our participants for this series, Pastor Ben Tomzak from Bethel Lutheran Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Pastor John Bergman, serving Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Downers Grove, Illinois. And I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Uh, resurrection reality. John, how does this week fit into the worship series? The promises of the resurrection are sometimes difficult to believe because they just seem too good to be true. And when someone tells you something that seems too good to be true, perhaps you have a problem believing if, if it's just one person telling it to you someone claiming they saw something incredible or this or that, especially depending on whether you respect that person or not. The neat thing is that as we see the re resurrection reality, this is not based on one person going off somewhere and claiming to have some kind of revelation now. Instead, Jesus himself appears to many people, and we're going to begin to see one of those appearances today again and again and again, proving the reality that he has truly risen from the dead. And that reality is going to fill hearts with peace and joy uh, to be witnesses to many more. Great. Thank you for that summary. Uh, ben, could we hear a little bit about the first and second readings for today before we dive into our sermon text? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for giving me a chance to be here. This is always a fun part of my, my weeks when we're doing this. The Old Testament, well, it's not Old Testament lesson, but in the slot we think it was the Old Testament spot, we get our readings from Acts in the Easter season. Mm -hmm. and we've got Acts chapter 18, is verses 1 to 11. Paul goes to Corinth, and uh, John was just talking about the, you know, the, the witnesses of the resurrection and, and what the resurrection does when you know about it. It's, it's giving you confidence and power. We're going to talk about Okay, uh, Ben froze up there no for a second. I think we've got him back on. So, uh, Ben, I'll pass it back to you uh, to pick up wherever you, <laughs> yeah, wherever you think uh, uh, is appropriate to to start up again. Sorry about that. And that's the meaning of life. Back to you, John. All right. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. We were, we're talking about Acts eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> um. So St. Paul has drunk deeply of, of what Jesus has said. A word has been given to him, and he's using it. In, in Acts 18, it says, uh, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade the Jews because he knows that's what the word will do. These are written that you may believe Jesus had said. And then his com compadres show up, Silas and Timothy, and Paul gets a chance to do something he doesn't always get to do. Just be a preacher. He says he was a tent maker, but then they showed up, and it sounds like he was able to take a break from doing that and be full-time in ministry, and he devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Why? To testify that Jesus is the Christ. Because Paul understood whether intuitively, by faith, or because these words are so plain, we'll hear in our gospel, that that's what we do. When at all possible, the ministry of the word is to push everything else aside so that we can bring Christ to people, um, so that we can forgive those whose sins we can forgive. Although we also see Paul having to use the other key, um, and we've got that lesson coming up uh, about how the, the use of the key. Sorry, we had another break in the recording there, but Ben, you were talking about the use of the keys and how we see connections there between that and Acts 18. 
right? You know, this reminds me of Professor Brenner, who always said that computers are the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> that's not a theological conclusion, but it, it's certainly worth considering here. Uh, no, no, Paul puts the keys into action. We see both the binding and the loosing key in Corinth, and we see how we could use the binding key, which might be the one we're terrified to use when they became abusive to him, is when he said, your blood be on your heads. And yet we see the glory of the many who heard the word and believed. Um, and then Jesus gives him encouragement in his in his challenges. And, and that's one of the, the centers of this text. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I'm with you. Exactly what Jesus says in the gospel. And then we get St. John in the opening words of his letter, famous words that sound a lot like the opening words of his gospel um, when he talks about the word. And he talks about the word we saw, heard, and touched. And John had to be thinking. Okay, we're back. We lost Ben for a moment again there, but Ben, you were talking about 1 John chapter 1, uh, and John uh, recalling as he wrote these words. I was lost, and now I'm found. Yeah, no, there's no doubt that, that John had to be thinking back to this first Easter as he's writing these opening words of his gospel, the, the, the Lord we saw, heard, and touched. All those things happen in the gospel, and and he even breathed on them, as we'll hear in, in, in John chapter 20. And But John understood what to do with that. That wasn't just um, something that was given to them as a special mystical experience to hide in the deepest cockles of their heart. But it's this we proclaim, he says. He's writing that to his congregation, uh, and he's proclaiming eternal life. He understands that we confess in our confessions that, that the word of God is the voice of God. And so when Jesus says that we can say you are forgiven and your sins are forgiven, John gets that. That was not some Reformation insight or um, a leap in logic. John understood it. And then he says, here's what happens. Um, he This makes us have fellowship with each other and with the triune God, with the Father and his Son, Jesus. And that's the purpose of his writing. So he's binding together. It's kind of like Luke at the end of Luke in the beginning of Acts. First John feels like he's picking up right where he ended our gospel lesson today. These are written that you may believe. And John writes, we write this to make our joy complete. Yeah, that's a neat way of thinking that. I hadn't thought of that before, but uh, how Luke uh, continues on with Acts, and it, it is almost as if John is picking up where he left off uh, in his gospel here. Um, speaking of which, let's go to the gospel of the day then, which will be our sermon text suggested for this series. Uh, John, could we go back to you just getting preachers thinking about some of the things that are here in this gospel? And uh how to preach them, uh, ideas to share with preachers. Yes, there is quite a bit in this text. I'm sure we're going to have some fun unpacking it, but just a few introductory thoughts. First of all, this is a good Sunday to also look ahead or uh, what's coming next week, because next week when we go to Easter 3, we are going to be looking basically at the same scene again, and it's going to be in Luke chapter 24. So we're, we're kind of looking at the same scene from two different perspectives week to week. And just to keep that in mind so we can focus our attention maybe on, on each week, that today we're going to look more about the, the gift of peace that the Savior gives to us by showing us the reality of the resurrection. Next week, we're going to see that gift, but see how it empowers us to go share that peace or be a messenger of that peace. So just for preachers to kind of look ahead a little bit might be a helpful thing. And then also just at, at this time of the year, I always loved this text because it gave me a boost the week after Easter. I would always think in my mind, I just need to get through Lent and Easter. I just need to get through Lent and Easter, and then I'll be able to breathe. But then I would find I'd get through Lent and Easter, and all of that stuff that I had just been ignoring 
through all of Lent and Easter was right back on my plate again. <laughs> and sometimes I needed like a post-Easter boost because not only was I looking at that, but then on Easter, sometimes God would bless us with wonderful attendance. And somewhere in my dreams, I, I would think, well, this is great. This is how it's just going to be the rest of the year now. And then the, the next weekend after Easter wouldn't be quite that same attendance, wouldn't quite be that same energy maybe in the building or, or so it seemed. And I see that in this text too with the disciples. We're going to see them at, at two different points, really. First of all, on, on the evening of Easter, but then we're going to see them a week later too. And on neither of these times are they singing alleluias and having potlucks and, and decorating and all of this. I mean, a week after Easter, it seems they're still going to be almost as scared as they were on that very first Easter too. So how wonderful that Jesus comes to give them some resurrection reality, gives them proof and peace when they most need it, including in the days after Easter. And I think that's just wonderful timing for us preachers and our congregations as well. So I'll just kind of get that going as an intro to the text. And I can't wait for all of us to dig into this a little more deeply. Okay, well, let's maybe kind of look uh, uh, at the first portion of the text at Jesus' appearance to the disciples minus Thomas um, uh, and his appearance, gift of peace. Um, ben, uh, your thoughts on that first section or things that maybe I'll just ask it this way, things that jump out at you um, that you're including in a sermon uh, on this first section of the text? The word that jumps out here, and then it's pretty cool. It's going to show up again. So to me, it it's the key for the whole text. If you're looking for something to bind it together, was that word peace that mm -hmm. Jesus repeats it over and over and over again. I love what you said uh, a few minutes ago, John, um, about, you know, Jesus seems to be too good to be true. And, and that, I'm sure that's what the disciples were thinking. And like the Emmaus disciples, that's exactly what they said, right? We thought we had... It, if they if they didn't say those words, Luke should the spirit should have inspired them to say. Uh, it turns out this Jesus was too good to be true, and Jesus comes here and he's saying, "No, I'm not too good to be true. I'm just true. <laughs> I am just so good. I it is unimaginably good that he would come to these whiny, complainy, terrified guys who've heard everything that they've heard from Jesus, and his words are peace, not you." bats not come on what are we doing but peace and and um when i when i was writing on this you know just one of the thoughts that the two thoughts that came to mind is how jesus treats them here and then with thomas where a jesus wastes no time on easter not a second of time yeah. uh, on anything peripheral he spends all day showing people that he's alive and forgiving sins that's what he does in the morning that's what he does in the afternoon and that's what he does in the evening and even even in the places where we could see him rebuking people, um, which he doesn't really do on Easter evening, but I hear it as a, a mild and gentle rebuke. You know, here, go ahead, touch me. And, and when he's saying peace, and, and, and it's just incredible that I know how I am with my kids or with my students, um, never with my spouse. I never do this with my wife, not for a second, but with most other people, you know, we're so short-tempered. Uh, and Jesus is just coming and loving these guys in outrageous ways, but at the same time, immediately commissioning them for a task. All right, guys, again, not wasting time. I was sent to forgive sins, and I'm sending you out to do the same thing. So, of course, our catechism grabs this for the ministry of the keys, which means 
you're tempted to say, here's what this sermon is about, um, which makes it interesting. Is the second part of the text an application of the keys? Um, is the second part of the text a different theme? You got multiple mm -hmm. directions you could go here. Right, right. Yeah, that's part of the bigger theological context, right, is that this is uh, um, Jesus commissioning his followers to proclaim forgiveness, sending them out with forgiveness, um, and that's just a vital part of this the resurrection reality uh, in which we live even today. Um, yeah, uh, John, could we go back to you? Things that maybe stand out to you in this first section of the text. Yes, I like to. Ben was just talking about all of these doubting disciples. When we come to this section, it's easy to maybe hold up Thomas as the uh, the scapegoat here, and he's known as doubting Thomas. But certainly, he doubted. But they they all did as well, including that first day of uh, of Easter or Easter evening. They've already heard the clear witness of many, and they won't believe it. And then they have the appearance of Jesus, and a week later, they're still. They're still doubting too, and and in Mark's account, in Mark sixteen fourteen, he, he appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. So they did need some rebuking, and just uh, applying that to myself too. How haven't I heard those same promises of Jesus again and again and again and again and again and again? And yet, how easy it is for me to look for peace in all of the wrong places. And my outward circumstances or in what I'm feeling or thinking. And and we can only imagine that's what the disciples were doing, too. They, they knew the Jews were still out there who killed Jesus. They knew all this. They just locked themselves away. And instead of holding on to the clear word of God, they're holding or grasping for peace and everything else. And, and uh, I see myself sitting among them many days, too. So I need both that rebuke. And then, of course, as Benjamin was doing a wonderful job reminding us the the gentle patience of my Savior, too, to continue to reach out to me. But it is interesting how they are all doubting here. Uh, Thomas is the one who gets a little more sassy about the whole thing, of course. And when he comes and talks to them, his, boy, his doubt really has an edge, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, right, and put my finger where the nails were. But it's interesting when you look at the word that's used in verse 25 for put, his hands, it's balo in the Greek. It can really mean to to throw almost or to shove. It, it, it's, it's almost graphic. I, I can just imagine them standing there going, oh, goodness gracious. I mean, it's like someone explodes in anger in the middle of a family meal and you're almost just, you don't even know what to say because he is, he's going off here. <laughs> Unless I shove my hand into his nails and wounds inside, ume, I will never believe it. I mean, this is just yeah. as strong as, as doubt gets. And, and what a law warning to me, though, too, there, because Thomas had walked with Jesus for three years. He had heard the promises, and yet doubt uh, was in his heart. Be careful if I think I'm standing firm that I don't fall either. I guess that's a little bit of the law. We're, I know we're going to get into the gospel, but some law thoughts that came to mind. Yeah, Ben, picking up on that, um, getting into the, the Thomas section of the text, um, either uh, thoughts related to the law uh, or or how Jesus responds to that? My very favorite confessions quotation, and I say that knowing that I'll think of another one I love more, is in the large catechism when Luther is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, and he says that everything in the church is arranged for the continuous application of the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. That's somewhere in the 50s paragraphs. Of, of the third part of the large catechism in the creed. And 
And that's such a beautiful statement. Um, and yet within it is also a rebuke to us where when Jesus, you know, he's saying, you know, the, the church is about forgiving sins or binding. And the church is about applying the keys. And, and that's something uh, we either forget to do because we get caught up in the finances or in, um, you know, counseling or any number of things that are all fine, well, and good on their own. But no, the church is about the forgiveness of sins and applying it. Um, or if we're not unwilling or kind of letting it drift, we improperly use these keys. We, we forgive when we shouldn't be, or we refuse to bind sins when we know we should, because we're kind of pushovers to forgive everything. And um, that, that's just, uh, we'd much rather do that because it, it's a lot more fun. So Jesus has set that tone and then he shows us how to use the keys. Yeah, if, if you want to preach this text as the, the use of the keys, you've got a beautiful example of it um, where Jesus um, is going to show us when I say sins get forgiven, I'm going to I'm going to live it out. Um, and and I'm, I'm really going to do this. I'm going to bend over backwards. We see Jesus doing that. And, right. you know, this reminds me of so many accounts where Peter asks about forgiveness, right? Is it seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, or in Luke, when he says, if your brother comes to you seven times in the day, so if, if Thomas had come back an hour later and said, you know, I'm still not sure, yeah. Jesus would have done the exact same thing. And that's right about the moment we would be, oh, guys, what, what more do you want me to do? And, and that's, I don't want to hammer, I don't want to turn the keys into just, you know, make you feel so terribly guilty. So you want to transition to God's beautiful gift of, I am right here. The resurrected Lord, I will come to you as often as you need it. I'll say peace once. I'll say peace twice. I'll say it again. I'll hold out my hands. You can touch my sides. In the Holy Sacrament, we are touching the wounds of Christ. Can you even imagine that God would do that not once a year, once in your life, but he would give that to you as often as you need? These are the keys he's given us. So back to that quote, the continuous application of the forgiveness of sins. Continuous. Or in the small catechism, it's daily and fully. I just, I, I can't get enough. And I, my people are probably sick of me quoting those two passages of the confessions, but I refuse to stop. Yeah, it comes across so beautifully here with uh, Jesus. And uh, yeah, just the gospel saturation of, of this text and of Jesus' actions here. Um, and that that he wants that gospel to continue uh permeating the work of his church and just his forgiveness being wherever his people are. Um, yeah, getting into uh, more of the uh, the gospel aspects of the text, uh, John, do you have some some thoughts uh, pointing out other aspects or facets of the gospel here? Yes, it's packed with gospel from beginning to end. He comes into their midst. He stands among them. He doesn't wait for them to go find him. He comes to them and they're their desperate hour of need. He comes to us that way too, through word and sacrament. But then he shows them his hands and side. And yes, that's proof that he's risen from the dead. But what else is it proof? It's almost a visual preaching of the keys there, that in those hands and side, they see nail marks or they see a spear wound. They see the proof that all of their sins have been forgiven because of what he did. But he's alive now. So what a visual proclamation of the gospel that is too, besides just a a reasonable proof uh, that, that he is alive. And then, of course, what we're talking about here, peace. Uh, common shalom, right? Common greeting to give one another. But as many say who comment on this text, it's so much more when Jesus says this. He, this isn't a, a cordial, polite. Okay, we lost John for a moment there, but he's back. Uh, 
And uh, John, we want to pick up, um, yeah, in the the general vicinity of, of where you left off before, talking about the, the peace that Jesus brings? Yes, I will do that. So, right. Jesus showed them his hands inside. That was one thought I was, I was saying there. When he did that, it wasn't just reasonable evidence that he was alive, but by showing them his hands inside, they would have seen the nail marks. They would have seen the wounds. It was a visible proclamation of the gospel, really. They would have been reminded that right there is the reason why their sins are forgiven, and they would live forever. What a beautiful gesture that he makes to them and to Thomas as well. And then that word peace that so much of our thoughts revolve around today, as I was saying it, it wasn't just a common greeting. Yeah, shalom was, but when Jesus uses it here, it's not niceties. It's something much deeper and, and, and far more. It's a state of being right with God, but then it's also something that he's giving to them. He's imparting to them in the very words that he proclaims. And this peace is going to be something that does not depend on their circumstance, on their situation. It's something that can be theirs and ours now and forever because of the very power that those words bring with it. What a beautiful greeting and words that he gives to them. Yeah, thank you. Um, so talking about applications for uh, a sermon like this, Ben, you already mentioned a good one. Uh, making the connection to um, how Jesus is still appearing among us in the sacrament. Uh, we are touching the the wounds of Christ um, and receiving that forgiveness and that peace that he gives out freely uh, and, and has been uh, since that Easter evening and before. Um, other applications that come to mind or that you mentioned in a sermon on this text. Um, ben, anything further on that score? Well, kind of picking up where John was talking about that word peace, which is a way better way to start a conversation like this than like calm down as any wife will attest, right? Jesus was smart in so many ways. Um, but that peace uh, also brings to mind his words from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. He could so easily have come ranting and raging into this room, just like we can, you know, come down hard on any number of people. And yet it's just so gentle you know every bit every one of those things from the sermon, sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek and we see jesus come and he does strange things whether it's the word peace or breathing on them or again accommodating thomas um you know he's got this guy and, and you you mentioned my favorite greek construction john the, the ume that strong negation you got thomas saying give me more our, our dissatisfaction we are so dissatisfied with the word we want more i want a miracle i I want to touch and, and hold on. I want something to dig my hands into. And, and Jesus, A, says, okay. So he gives us you know, the means of grace, the tangible baptism and sacrament. And then he says at the same time, and what I've given you is just right. Um, I've given you just enough. And even that is more than you could ever have imagined because what I, I have given you creates faith, which we saw in Thomas because his response to Jesus was my Lord and my God. Um, so, you know, that, how we are using the keys, I think, is also a part of this to to gently you know, be a peacemaker, which is so hard to do because that's not how you go viral by being a peacemaker with a basic message. You go viral by saying something controversial and, and giving your your hot theological take of the day. Um, but Jesus just kind of sighed on them. And 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 gives them his spirit. So now there is an echo back to the first book of the Bible, right, where God gives life to the man. He's giving life to them, life to their ministry. 
uh, as well. So again, everything we've got comes from God. This peace that we could be this peaceful in our ministry, in our in our application of the keys, whether we're a preacher of the word or a parent or a Christian friend, uh, you know that mutual consolation of brethren, as the the, the small cut articles say, is a is done in peace as well. Right, right. Uh, John, any further application thoughts uh, related sure. to the text? Yeah, I think in those last couple of paragraphs of the text, uh, both Jesus and John do some wonderful application for us. Jesus says, now, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And just like that word peace can have beautiful meaning or can be just a cheap kind of thing, peace, man, or whatever, the word blessed or blessed, I think, can also well, in our culture, sometimes it loses its meaning. I'm, I'm, I'm just so blessed. You hear that all the time. And sometimes you see the people saying that. Why? Because they're sitting in a nice house. They're on vacation. It seems like everything in their life is going well. And they just say blessed. And of course, yes, if God gives you earthly joys and comforts, you are blessed. But these disciples in the days to come are not going to be seeing all kinds of earthly comforts. They're going to be going through persecution and all that, but they'd be blessed. And we now who do not see him with our own eyes and yet carry the cross, Jesus is saying, you will be blessed too. I, what a beautiful application here. You're going to be blessed because the blessing and peace he brings us, again, does not have anything to do with our circumstance, whether we're behind locked doors or our emotions or our reason. Unless I see this or that proof of Jesus, I'm, I, I can't be blessed or I can't have peace. No, this is a peace and a blessing that is going to come from the word proclaimed to us, the keys administered to us, and nothing can change that and take that away. So this is an ongoing proof and peace and blessing that Easter brings. And then finally, just those last words of the text are so marvelous, right? That these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And um Again, maybe that's another phrase that can be cheapened at times. You know, live your best life now. What is well, what does that mean? This life, of course, that Jesus brings us is also not just a cheap happiness. It's life forever with God and life with meaning now as well. If I have peace with Him, so those last two paragraphs could really set you up for a lot of wonderful gospel application for your people and yourself. Thank you for that. Uh, so tying the whole sermon together, uh, Ben, you mentioned before that the idea of peace that runs throughout the text is maybe a good way to do that, to kind of bring up uh, unified central thought across um, really strongly. Um, any further ideas for uh, a theme for the sermon or kind of a, a one focal point for the sermon? How are you guys approaching that? Uh, ben, did I just... Uh, summarize what what you were going to say on, on that topic i i think so yeah i mean you know that that word peace just dominated my thinking so you know you got you got john lennon you know give peace a chance right and you can talk about the difference between flashing the peace sign um and say yeah it's called absolution in the church that's what we're talking about here which ironically could lead to some less war and fighting um so that that's the best theme idea i had um unless a couple others where, you know, Jesus doesn't just talk about the keys, he uses them. Something something like this isn't just abstract theology, it's concrete yeah. uh, in, in practice a little bit. Okay, great. Uh, John, any ideas? Uh, ways that I've approached this, once I looked into the kind of the theme of nicknames, you know, how nicknames stick, and there can be some interesting ones throughout history. 
John the Magnanimous, a hero of the Reformation, but the was Charles the Bald, I think he was a Holy Roman Empire, or Folk the Fat was a Swedish king in the 1100s. I mean, there's Ivan the Terrible, there's good and bad nicknames. And and today I think we, we see one of the most famous nicknames in all of the Bible. And I've just said this in my sermon, you know, his name is Thomas, what's his nickname? And a number of people just almost shouted out, Doubting. Everyone knows it's Doubting Thomas. And yet actually the nickname that is given to Thomas in this text is not Doubting, it's Didymus right? Which means the twin. And then I just use it as a question, who is Thomas's twin? And of course, we don't know from scripture, but I asked the question, could it be you or could it be me? And no, I'm not suggesting we were born in, in the womb with Thomas. So he's certainly older than us, but in, one, in, in what ways could we act as his twin? And that's when I doubt God's word for me. That's the law. But then coming back around to the gospel, in the end, I can be his twin, too. I can go forth with just as much joy, saying, my Lord and my God, uh, filled with peace, because Jesus has appeared to me as well in word and sacrament. So that's one way that I approach this text. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. I think I've, I've heard that mentioned before by someone. Yeah, the idea of the, the imagining ourselves as the twin of Thomas and identifying with him, both kind of in the law uh, the law aspect of the text and the gospel aspect. Uh, ben, something further? Yeah, just a couple of the, I guess, illustrations slash applications, I think, come from that that, that really um, benefited me. Um, earlier on, John, you were talking about the, the post-Easter boost pastors need, and there's a joke. I feel like it came up in one of our, our episodes, but maybe it was somewhere else. You know, uh, the Latin name for this Sunday, right, is quasi-modogeneity. Yep. And the joke is, where have all the people gone is what that means. Right. Um, it is like, it's like one of the three Sundays of the year you can guarantee, you know, nobody shows up for church. Um, but that doesn't have to be depressing. And you were kind of talking about that. And and I think you want to rejoice in whoever you get to forgive and minister to. In fact, in some ways, we could argue the keys are best applied one-on-one. -on -one where you can really, as a doctor, give the right medicine to the right person at the right time. So, you know, as pastors to pastors, you could kind of make that that gentle joke because we're all, I mean, just heartbroken when nobody shows up and we feel like, why did we preach for that? Why do we, after the, the the chaos of Easter and writing five sermons in a week, why do we bother writing that that sermon no one came to hear? Kind of like uh, in Eleanor Rigby, right? Father McKenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. That's Easter too. So keep, keep that in mind is how the keys can be used. Um, with the binding key, I think that's the one we're, we struggle with. And, and I think sometimes my fear is that the binding key is used to hold a grudge, which is certainly a temptation. Um, so we have to hear Paul say, love keeps no record of wrongs. Um, but And we remember that that's what God does. He doesn't remember our sins. And, and even Buddhists get this. There's a quote, a Buddhist quote that I love. It's not from Buddha. It's a later commentator. The man who holds flaming coals only bur burns himself. And that's we're fearful that's what not forgiving is. And it can be that, but because our sinful heart wants to weaponize the keys, but it's really not. When Christ washed us in baptism, when he feeds us on his supper in the word, we want to do what's been done to us. We want to forgive, but there are some people we meet who hold on to their own sins. And so when we use the binding key, that's not grudging. It's just saying, if you won't let go, neither will God. And and, and the last bit, and I'll let, let you guys uh, go on and, and do with this what you will. Oh, this whole text reminds me of how Luther dealt with his princes when they were wondering about whether they could fight a war against their emperor. 
and I'm just going to paraphrase. There's a lot of great tracks Luther wrote in, in like the late 1520s, early 1530s. And he basically said, if there's a war, make it clear that they started it. Offer every olive branch and everyone should know that the other guys started the war. And I, I think the keys are the same. And Christ he treats us the same way. He offers olive branches to his disciples, right? Words and water and meal. And he offers them to us and we offer those same olive branches. So if someone rejects the word, if we have to apply the binding key, it should be clear that they rejected it, not that we drove them away. Because Christ really does want to forgive them as much as he forgave us. And we really want to forgive them as much as we've been forgiven. Right, right. Yeah, the binding key is really acknowledging the fact of the matter that uh, someone has closed themselves off to God's forgiveness. Uh, that Yeah, it doesn't speak to our desire uh, that they remain in that state quite the opposite right um but right uh good thoughts on on the administration of the keys that we see uh in this text um yeah just one uh one encouragement too uh while i'm thinking of it a couple of good hymns i mean uh oh sons and daughters of the king it kind of retells this story the latter verses especially which is you know i find useful just to get the narrative scriptural narrative in people's minds um, you can use the old French tune too, that, that's in the new hymnal also, which is kind of cool, uh, more chant-like. And then um, these things did Thomas count as real, which is a new hymn to many of us. Uh, might take a little introducing musically, but really profound and uh, kind of provocative uh, poetry there, if you want to consider that hymn on this Sunday as well. Uh, John, uh, further thoughts? Uh, just one other illustration in there. Uh some of you might have heard of this story, true story, but it was of Lieutenant Hiro Onoda, and my apologies if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, he was, I believe, the last of the Japanese standouts after World War II. He didn't get word that the war, war was over, and they found him in March of 1974. March of 1974, still holed up. Uh, on an island in the Philippines, and he would—he almost he refused to believe that it was done. They had to actually bring him proof from, I think, the Japanese government in writing that the war was over before he refused to, to come back out again. And it made me really think just a little bit out of the disciples. that They're still holed up. They didn't need to be, really, because Jesus told them he was going to rise again from the dead and he'd be with them. But they keep holding themselves up. But then, of course, once he gives them that proof and peace, they can be released to be his messengers to the world. And that's what we are going to get into next week. So I'm not going to go more on that, but just an application. We don't need to live as if the war was still going on in the sense that, that Jesus hadn't died, hadn't risen. He's, he's lived, died, and rose indeed. We do not need to lock ourselves up for fear. We can have proof and peace and, and live in the ongoing victory of, of resurrection reality. Yeah, well, that's a great way to wrap things up today. Let's... Uh... Turn it over to preachers now. Excuse me, preaching on uh, this beautiful gospel. Uh, and sorry about the technical difficulties, but uh, we will uh, see you next time. God bless your proclamation of the resurrection reality in Jesus.